Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Well, hello, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Bread of the Word podcast, where we go at Fontes, to the fountain, to the Word of God, to be nourished and sustained by all that God is, as he has revealed himself to us. My name is Tyler, I'm your host, and we are continuing our trek in the book of Song of Solomon. I also want you to uh, keep an eye out, because next Tuesday, um, I'm going to have a guest on for a special bonus episode of Bread of the Word, and I'm going to have Jesse from the... Bible Theory Podcast, also known as the Chicano Knox. I uh, was also a member of the Truth and Love Network, and we're going to be sitting down and discussing the Doctrine of Scripture next Tuesday, and we're going to live stream that one. It's going to be the first ever Bread of the Word live stream, which I'm very excited for. Um, catch that on Rumble, which is the only place to where you can see Bread of the Word, courtesy of Facebook Oversight. Uh, but continuing through our book, of, our study in Song of Solomon, this phenomenal book that is so challenging for us today. If, if you were listening last week, it was a doozy. Um, last week, we had some of the intimate language that tends to skirt us away from Song of Solomon, and we were talking about breasts and some of this stuff. And um, You'll have to forgive me. I was a little unsure what to do myself. Um, I'm not the expert here. I'm not the seminary grad who's worked through this book um, for essays and grades and stuff. Um, this is as new to me as it is to some of you. We are puzzling through this book together. But we're going to be finishing chapter one today. So we are going very slowly. But uh, the last three verses of chapter one, and it says, How beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. Your eyes are doves. That's the man speaking. Now we go to the woman. How handsome you are, my love. How delightful. Our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars, and our rafters are cypresses. So last week, we discussed um, the way our culture has destroyed beauty. Now we've kind of cannibalized beauty. We've made it a subjective term in order to better fit our carnal desires a lot of times. But here we see a different framework. It's continued to, it's being continued to be fleshed out here from last week. But the beauty that God calls us into is different from the beauty that we have defined in our own minds. Um, Lamentations 2 says, All who pass by scornfully clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at daughter Jerusalem. In the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth. 
Nahum, too, says beauty is stripped. She is carried away. Her and ladies-in-waiting moan, like the sound of doves, and beat their breasts. That's our carnal concept of beauty, and God tears it down in his justice as the God that he is. But God shows us um, a different view of beauty in this text. And there are two things that we can identify here between the man and the woman. The beauty that Christ sees in his people and the beauty that we behold in our God. Characterized by the man and the woman. So the first is the man. So the question is, what does Christ see in his people? And so for that, let us go back to Exodus and let's do some history. Um, Exodus 13 says, Let it serve as a sign for you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead, so that the Lord's instruction may be in your mouth. Why? For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand. That's history. This is what I did. Now, act accordingly. Now, enter into a new life. Enter into new circumstances. Enter into something new and different. You are no longer in bondage in Egypt. You serve me. Numbers 14, though, um, he's led them out of Egypt with a strong hand, it says. He's led them out of Egypt, and he leads them to the promised land. They don't enter the promised land. Um, Numbers 14 says, All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, um, this is literature. That this is, this is poetry, this is narrative, and so there's a story component to this. And so as I was reading the story, it's very easy to go, How could you say that? How could you think like that? You were literally in slavery. And to serve God, to follow God, is grievous to the point that you would rather be a slave in Egypt. But when we take a step back and consider the, the, the substance there, we are guilty of the same thing sometimes. Not necessarily in regards to physical slavery, but every single one of us is a slave unto sin. Um, the Apostle Paul was very clear about that, that we are slaves to sin. But we, can, we are made slaves of Christ, that we are brought out of that bondage to sin into bondage to Christ. But that bondage to Christ is different than being a slave in that sense. That there is a freedom that we have in Christ that we didn't have when we were in bondage to sin. That when we use that term bondage, we are under Christ's authority, but there is there's something freeing about it. The Israelites didn't quite grasp that, and so they saw um, Egypt as sort of like the grass is greener, greener on the other side, and so they wanted to go back. That where they were now, despite the fact that it was a better set of circumstances, it was a better envir environment, it was a better king, they didn't want to go there. And so... What does God declare in Numbers 14? Yet as I live, and as the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory, 
None of the men who have seen my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tested me these ten times and did not obey me will ever see the land I swore to their ancestors. Oof. He says, none of those who have despised me will see it. But since my servant Caleb has a different spirit and has remained loyal to me, I will bring him into the land where he has gone, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the lowlands, turn back tomorrow and head for the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. So God sends them away because they will not obey. And they live in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation dies. And yet God selected this flippant nation out of all others for his own glory. It says in, A it says in Amos, you only have I known. Elsewhere it says in Amos, the Lord says, as the shepherd snatches two legs or a piece of an ear from the lion's mouth, so the Israelites who live in Samaria will be rescued with only the corner of a bed or the cushion of a couch. What's been illustrated there is um, the idea of a remnant that a remnant is preserved in the midst of the exile, in, in the midst of God raining down fire and judgment on, on uh, Israel in the future. This is much later, but the, the principle still applies here that God is preserving a remnant. And so he snatches two legs or the piece of an ear from the lion's mouth. So the Israelites who live in Samaria will be rescued with only the corner of a bed or the cushion of a couch. In other words, it's not just about the majority. Because while all of these Israelites refused to obey, you had Caleb and Joshua. You had a very small portion. You had a remnant, so to speak, of those who were faithful. And it wasn't because of anything in them. It was because of what God had done within them. It was what God had put in their hearts. It was that God was working in them. Because the human heart is deceitful and altogether wicked. Who can understand it? But the reality is that God had reserved for himself a people. Even in their midst here, God was preserving for himself a people. Deuteronomy 9 says, When the Lord your God, which this is the generation after Moses, this is after the 40 years in the wilderness, when the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. You are not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness in order to fulfill the promise he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. And that's a phrase that he uses a lot in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 3 says, Return, you faithless children. This is the Lord's declaration, for I am your master, and I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. I will give you shepherds who are loyal to me, 
and they will shepherd you with knowledge and skill. When you multiply and increase in the land in those days, this is the Lord's declaration, no one will say again, the ark of the Lord's covenant. It will never come to mind, and no one will remember or miss it. Another one will not be made. At that time, Jerusalem will be called the Lord's throne, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord in Jerusalem. They will cease to follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah will join the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north, to the land I have given your ancestors to inherit. So we have a picture of love. We have a picture of mercy that is not earned, but is given. The land is is mercy. The, the picture of Canaan was a picture of God's mercy, of his unmerited favor. In short, what God sees in his people says more about him than it does about us. For his people, he says, are a stiff-necked people, prone to rebellion and backsliding. God making us his people is from his love, not from our righteousness. It is all of God. It is his love. It is his mercy. It is his grace, not our righteousness or integrity. Because our righteousness and integrity would be an argument against us being given that land, so to speak. But the, the, the Christ figure in Song of Solomon says how beautiful you are, how very beautiful. That is how Christ regards his people. When we read about righteousness in the New Testament, it is describing being counted as righteousness, not being made righteousness or becoming righteous, but being counted as righteous. Christ regards us as righteous. He regards his bride as beautiful. And he says, your eyes are doves. He regards his bride as like a dove, something like a dove, something pure, something undefiled. Despite what may lie there, God delights in his bride. Not because of the merits of the bride, but because of his own merits, because of his own character, he loves us. It says in Romans that we know the love of God in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, Christ died. And so what ought we to see in that? What ought we to make of this picture that's being drawn for us? What ought the people of God see in the bridegroom? How handsome you are, my love. How delightful. Our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars, and our rafters are cypresses. Now again, we've got this word bed, and if you grew up in a in a in youth group in that, that high school church environment, um, this book was often presented as being about how to um, be abstinent until marriage. And so it got a little weird when you got to this this part of Song of Solomon when he's talking about the beds. But in Hebrew, the word bed, the word we translate as bed, quite literally means surroundings. It's more like an environment. And so we have this picture of their environment, their surroundings. The beauty that she notices is attached to the house that he is building, to the surroundings of them both.
the beauty of her husband is attached to the house that he is building for her. Um, Ephesians 4 says, From the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. One of the pictures of the people of God in the New Testament of the church is building. In the Old Testament, we have prophecies concerning a temple that God will build. In the New Testament, that temple is the people of God. Ezekiel 48 says, These are the exits of the city. The city of God. This is the end of the book of Ezekiel. On the north side, which measures one and a half miles, there will be three gates facing north, the gates of the city being named for the tribes of Israel. One, the gate of Reuben. One, the gate of Judah. One, the gate of Levi. On the east side, which is one and a half miles, there will be three gates. One, the gate of Joseph. One, the gate of Benjamin. And one, the gate of Dan. On the south side, which measures one and a half miles, there will be three gates. One, the gate of Simon. One, the gate of Issachar and one the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is one and a half miles, are you seeing a pattern? On the west side, which is one and a half miles, there will be three gates, one the gate of Gad, one the gate of Asher, and one the gate of Naphtali. The perimeter of the city will be six miles, and the name of the city from that day will be The Lord is There. So we've got all the, the 12 tribes of Israel are represented in the surroundings of this city. And so we've got this picture of the completeness of God's people. But we, have a, we have this city that's being built, this promise of a city. And Ezekiel, there's a massive chunk of Ezekiel that's dedicated to the building of a temple. And many have looked at that section and said, this is a, a literal temple, a physical building that is going to be rebuilt someday. And that feeds into eschatology a little bit with the end times can't happen until the temple is rebuilt. And I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to declare my eschatology today. I'm, I'm not bringing out the charts or anything. But these are, these are relevant terms because we're talking about building. We're talking about a building. Isaiah 60 is another such passage that has temple imagery in it. Um, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness will cover the earth, and total darkness the peoples, but the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to your shining brightness. That's only a small portion, but we have all this talk of light and darkness and nations. Now let's look at Revelation 21. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. Sounds like Ezekiel 48. God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. So we've got this picture of God making things new. Where it gets Tricky is Revelation twenty one twenty two. I did not see a temple in it. But we, we just had all this imagery of building a temple. I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. While we may expect that the temple promises in Ezekiel and Isaiah to be a future literal temple, a building we could all walk into, 
the reality may actually be something else. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And you read Revelation 21 and 22, and that language is full of what we see in Ezekiel and Isaiah in reference to the temple. But it's not, about, it's not talking about a temple. It's talking about the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth. God's dwelling is with people. The language in those two chapters uses this language from Ezekiel and Isaiah in reference to the new creation when God makes all things new. The house, of, the house that God is building is not a literal house, but a realized one. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 16. says, Our bed is verdant. It is delightful. The beams of our house are cedars, and our rafters are cypresses. In short, the beauty of, of God as the husband is in his love for his bride, and the beauty seen by the bride is in God making a spiritual house. And you can follow that trend through much of the New Testament that we are the temple. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, Do you not know that you are the temple, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth within you? We are the we are the temple. That the, the temple was to be a, a foreshadowing of what God was going to do through the cross. Because now, because it used to be, you went into the temple to commune with God. And that is where you had to go to, to be with God. But now, in Christ, this side of the cross, having atonement accomplished for, the, the veil is torn, Death has been robbed. The, the tomb is empty. And we don't need to go to a building to be close to God because God dwells in his people. And there will become a day where we are physically united with God. As it says, the Lord is there. God's dwelling place is with humanity. But the reality is that it's not, it was never about just the building. The building was to point to something greater. And so in closing, let us consider a passage in the book of Acts. Um, Acts um, chapter 17, verse 22. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed, To an unknown God. Therefore, that what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in shrines made by human hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth, and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then, we are God's offspring. 
we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, that is Christ. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The God that we proclaim, the God that Paul proclaimed, the God that I proclaim today, is not bound to a building. He's not does not live in a temple made by human hands. He's not he does not dwell in artifacts of gold and silver, wood and stone. God our God is in the heavens. But he has made himself known to us that we would reach out to him. For he is not far from any of us. And he calls all men everywhere to repent, to turn from their sins, look to the work of Christ, who is building a building a city, building a spiritual house, which is the church. And one day, all things will pass away but the church. All things in this world will pass away, but the church will be purified and will continue to exist in a world where death, grief, sorrow, loss don't exist. And God will dwell with his people. The dwelling place of God will be with mankind. In a new heaven, in a new earth. And that is the house that God is building. And we that repent and trust in the work of Christ, who died to pay the penalty for our sins, that we would be reconciled to himself. That is what we become a part of. And I implore you today to... Turn from your sin and seek the face of Christ, to seek the Lord while he may be found, and find the mercy that you need. God bless. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless. Matthew 4.4